for you to grapple with individually if you need to. Um, and it's all about the idea, and, and, and I thought there are different ways to answer this question, and I, and I know it's, it, that is so, but I think maybe just from my own perspective, it is so critical that we grapple with this because the world, and I'm doing it in quotation marks based on how the scripture speaks of the world, the world is infiltrating the church. Um, it's always been uh, a reality. It's been a threat to the church that the ideas and the values of the world, that's what the world in the New Testament means. But those values, those ideas have become, you know, more powerful in the church than the church has been powerful in, in terms of influencing the world, which is, I think, what we're obviously called to. But in, in recent, actually, years, I suppose, whether it be IPC uh, to a lesser extent, but the larger church in my experience to a greater extent, the ideas of the world are given way too much place in the minds and in the hearts of the people of God and in the church of Christ. And we have to learn how to resist thinking like the world. I don't know whether you think that way or not, uh, or whether you look out at everything that's taught and what's believed in the culture and say, oh, that's fantastic, let's chase after it. But let me read you just a couple of verses from the Bible just to, to kick into this today. Uh, to, to, to help you understand what the New Testament has to say about the world. 1 John 2.15 says this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. That's kind of wild, right? It's like, don't love that stuff that's going on out there. Uh, that's for other people. That's not for you, my people, God says. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. It's like, whoa, that's, that's kind of stark, isn't it? But again, it's this distinction between the people of God and the people who are not the people of God and, and their thinking and their way and their beliefs and their practices. Don't, don't look out there and say, oh man, I love that. I want to be part of that. How about this one? James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. There is a clear and profound and strong distinction made from the beginning of the Bible until the end that the people of God are to be unique and distinct, unlike the world. See, way back in the Old Testament, God formed a nation called Israel, and he said, you are going to be my people, and you're not going to be like the surrounding nations. You're not going to think like them. You're not going to worship their gods. You're not going to act like them in terms of morality. You are going to be my people, and you're going to think my thoughts after me so that you will be distinct, so that you will be holy, unique among all the peoples of the world, different, dramatically unlike those who surround you. This is the teaching that's wired into Scripture, as I say, from the beginning to the end. 2 Corinthians 6, 17, and I'm just going to quote it to you. It says, um, that, that, and it's often misunderstood, but uh, it says there, it's a quote from the Old Testament, come out from them among them and be separate. And that, you know, what I'm describing to you right now is a legitimate way to interpret that verse as it is quoted. Come out from among them and be separate. God's saying, I want my people to be distinct. Even we're called a peculiar people in the New Testament. Do you know you're peculiar? And if you're not, there's something wrong. If I or you look like everybody else in the society, not marked by God, not given unique and distinct thoughts by God, morality, values, um, goals, we're missing the mark. 
We're called to be different. And I think this series on, on living under the authority of the Word of God is so important because I think there's a drift happening in the church at large in, in the West. And to some degree, maybe even at IPC. Who are we becoming more like the world than what God wants? It's always a threat to the church. It's a danger. And what we need to do if we want to get this right, if we want to be faithful before God, is we have to drift back to holiness. Drift back to thinking God's thoughts, which he's revealed in Scripture. That's why the book is so incredibly important. Drift back to believing the things that God has revealed in Scripture. Drift back to acting morally like God calls us to live morally as a holy people. Drift back to, as we've said in recent weeks, understanding that this book is an incredibly powerful book because it is inspired and true. It is the word of God to us. Now, I don't know how many of you people have just loved what I've said in these weeks and how many of you have absolutely hated it. But I'll tell you this. Everybody who has said that they have loved it, and there have been lots of them, they're older than 45. Except for one, and that's Brandon, our youth pastor, who is an exceptional exception, right? Because the culture speaks uh, in a very loud fashion in, in a way that's contrary to what I've been teaching you and what I will teach you today. So it's, it's because of that I want to coach all that I have said and what will be said in this reality. We are called to be holy, distinct, different, unique, God-like in how we think and act and live and believe. And I hope and I pray with all my heart that, you know, you, you are out there and that you are shining like a light in a dark universe. Philippians chapter 2, think about that. Light versus darkness. Different. Illuminating the reality of what it means to know and love Christ. Anyway, that's the why, if you would. And ultimately, what we are called is to be faithful to God. To get to that place where we are living as God wants us not only to live, because the focus is on belief in Scripture, but out of our belief comes action, of course, in many, many ways. So that we would know the abundant life that Jesus offered, so that we would know the eternal life that Jesus offered. Let me just stop for another kind of profound comment. If we don't believe what the Bible says, will we have eternal life? I know we can get it wrong with the moral issues here and there. I mean, but when it comes to the central reality, how do we know to gain eternal life? It's because God has told us how in the book. By faith in Christ. By faith. I mean, it was read today uh, by Brennan that if we will um, believe that, will profess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that he's been raised from the dead, we will be saved. How do we know those things are true? You make it up. Did I make it up? It's in the book. Our faith is founded on the reality of the book. And that's where we're headed today. But here's, here's the challenge. Here's the danger that we find ourselves in the midst of. There is, there is a thought that is being popularized uh, that really undermines everything that I just described, and it is this. And I'm going to illustrate it. But see if you can relate to this. If you've heard it, even if you've thought it a little bit, you can't really know what the Bible teaches. You ever thought that? You know, how about this idea? Everybody has their own interpretation of the Bible. You have yours, Chris, and I have mine. And, you, you know, you can't really tell me that your interpretation is any better than mine. I recognize that for two weeks, there could be people sitting in this church saying, well, that's Chris's interpretation of Scripture. I don't agree with them. That's not my interpretation of the Bible. It's really possible, and probably in the younger half of the population, because <laughs> the culture has taught kids to think like this. Young people, millennials up to mid-30s now. Um, but I want to tell you, 
if I have effectively communicated what God has inspired in the book, that thinking is faulty. You know, Paul went along uh, to the Bereans, Acts 17, if you want to look at it later, and he taught them about Christ. What did they do? They went to their scriptures, the Old Testament at the time, and they studied the scriptures to see if what Paul has said was actually true based in the Old Testament inspiration. And they determined in the end that what Paul had told them was true based on what the scripture has said. Therefore, they believed in Jesus. Guess what your job is? Listen to Chris on a Sunday morning, whoever might be preaching. Go to scripture and figure out if it's consistent with what the Bible says. If it's consistent with what the Bible says, it's not just my opinion, it is the word of God. And we've got to learn to submit our lives to the authority of the word of God, that book through which God has spoken. If, by the way, um, what I say is not consistent with the word of God, don't listen for a moment to it. You know, actually, if it happens a lot, I'd suggest you find another church because you shouldn't be here. I'm not kidding. Because I'm being unfaithful to my calling in terms of communicating the book to you. So there's one thought. You know, every, you know, you can't really know what the Bible says because of interpretation. It's all subjective. Here's another idea. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. You ever heard that? You know what? That's true. You can. You know, you can have an idea and you, and you, you can go to Scripture and you can say, Lord, I, you know, Lord, show me the text which kind of prove my point and, and give the biblical basis for what I already believe. And you can proof text. It's like pulling out a verse from here and a verse from there and a verse from here. It doesn't really capture the truth of Scripture, but you've got your verses, right? And you can come to that place where you, where you, you know, um, uh, take it out of context historically, and we're going to talk about some of those things today. And you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. That's not good, but you can do it. It's not what we're supposed to do. Who said this? The devil can cite scripture for his own purposes. Anybody know? The devil can cite scripture for his own purposes. You know, Francis? Professor of English literature, now retired. William Shakespeare. Isn't that wild? <laughs> 15 whatever. Early part of the century. The devil can cite scripture for his own purposes, which is exactly what the devil did when he confronted Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and tried to get Jesus to sin which, of, would of course, would have destroyed his whole ministry. <laughs> and he quoted Scripture. I'm not going to read it to you just because of time. Go and look at it later if you want. Study Scripture. Get to know it. Dig into it. But, you know, the reality is that uh, he misused Scripture in, those con in that context. And I want to tell you just the way people misuse Scripture then or the devil did so we can misuse Scripture today. we got to get it right. It's possible, as I've said, to go to the Bible for justification because we, we believe something already. We want to speak into the text rather than let the text speak out to us, the voice of God. To, to, to try to find justification for what we already believe. Listen to uh, 2 Timothy. Um, the 2 Timothy passage, gentlemen, I've forgotten the text. I didn't write it down. There you go, 4, four verse 3. For the time will come, are we there now, when people will not put up with sound doctrine, and that's teaching of Scripture. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. My belief is we're there. I'm going to find the teacher or the preacher who will tell me what I already think as opposed to what the Bible says, because that stuff challenges me too much. 
You know, I've been brought up in a culture who, which thinks this, and you're out calling me to believe this? Yeah, because that's what the church is. We're thinking God's thoughts, not human thoughts, right? We're called to be distinct and, and holy versus what's natural and normal. And I, I just want to challenge everyone here, please don't be like that. Don't have itching ears and find the people who are going to teach you the things that you already want to hear because that can just take you away from God and his will and the knowledge of him. Let me say this about this idea that we can go find the teaching that we want in order to satisfy our thoughts. You know, and the whole idea that you, know, you can't really know what God thinks. You can't know what the Bible says truly. Listen, God gave the Bible for us to know him, so it says, to reveal himself to us, his thoughts and his will and his actions and his desires for us. And if he gave the Bible so that we could know his mind, does it not make sense that he is able to lead us into a knowledge of that will? That kind of makes sense to me. If God gave it to us so that we would know what he thinks, he can enable us to do it. And then look at these verses, point number two, John 14, verses 25 and 26. All this I have spoken while still with you, Jesus speaking, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now that ought to make a difference. Jesus saying, I'm going to go away, but the Holy Spirit's going to come and he will be your teacher. He will lead you into an understanding of the mind of God. And then this text, two chapters later, John 16, verse 13. But when he, the, Holy, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. How much truth is the Holy Spirit going to lead us into? All truth. The Spirit of God is one of his primary tasks to enlighten the human mind, to open our eyes to see the things of God. The people who are the church, the people who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them because they've come to, to know and love and trust the Lord Jesus, the Spirit is there to help us understand. And God has promised that he will do that. It's, it's not my truth, it's not your truth, it is God's truth. And by the way, God's truth is ultimate truth. <laughs> that is the truth that we are called to know and to believe. My friends, postmodernism, which is now sort of the way that we think in our culture uh, doesn't believe in an ultimate truth. It doesn't believe that we can know God's mind and that, uh, that, that that is actually true. But the Bible says that such is true, and we have to choose whether we're going to believe the culture in this or whether we're going to believe the Bible. You see the distinction again? It comes over and over and over again. We have to come to believe. I would encourage you with all of my heart to believe the things that God has revealed to us. And we need the Holy Spirit to be at work when we study Scripture and when we sit with Scripture in our homes. Holy Spirit, open my eyes, reveal to me what is true. We need the Holy Spirit here on a Sunday morning so that maybe the eyes of the people gathered will hear the truth of the Word of God preached if it's done faithfully and fairly and rightly. And He, the Spirit of God, will lead you to know what's true from God's perspective, right? What is true? Well, how do we do this? I mean, how do we get to that point where we're really coming to a place where we are zeroing in and understanding what the Word of God says, the Bible, how to know what it really is saying? Well, this is going to be a different sermon today, as if it hasn't been already, I suppose. But I'm going to give you and spend a little time describing to you the how of biblical interpretation, 
Uh, I, I received an email um, a week, uh, this past week. Is Fred Hagel here? There he is. And Reverend Fred Hagel said, oh, yeah, all fa- fabulous. But you know what it really comes down to is biblical interpretation. And I wrote Fred Brack back this Sunday. It's on biblical interpretation because <laughs> it's critical. It is absolutely critical how we interpret the Bible because, again, is it subjective or, can, you know, how do you do this? I want to say this to you. You can interpret the Bible well. You can do it in such a fashion that you really come to know what the book says. That's my contention here today. Or you can interpret it poorly. And I would say to you, there are tons of people in our world, even in the church, who are doing a terrible job of biblical interpretation. And I want to talk to you about what a good means of interpreting the Bible is. You need to put your thinking cap on today. I was thinking about this. Like, who's going to be interested in hearing this stuff? Are you, by the way? Anybody? Yeah, some of you are? Okay. Oh, good. Whoa. That's awesome. I didn't think anybody would be. (laughs) But if you get this right, it will change your life. Because it will cause you to think, I can know the mind of God. I'm going to know it in this fashion or through this means. And I'm going to go to the scripture and I'm going to do what it says. And it will lead you into an into eternal life with Jesus. And it will lead you into abundant life while you're still here on earth. It's a big deal. It's huge. So here we go. Number one, the first hermeneutical principle. Just the science of interpretation that we're all taught at seminary. And I'm going to teach you just a little bit off. Right? Thinking, poor Fred, he's probably going to expect something incredibly profound. I'm just going to give you the basics, okay? He's read the books, so have I. Number one, when we go to, uh, to interpret Scripture, what we are seeking after is the original meaning of the text when the authors of Scripture wrote it down. It's called the autographs. And what we have to understand is what they were thinking and what they wrote because what they were thinking and what they wrote out of their little minds inspired by God is the truth of God. We believe, and we talked about that last week, how God inspired people to write his truth. Um, We have to figure out what they were saying then. That's foundational. And when we figure out what they were thinking and what they were intending and what they then wrote down, then we will be grappling with what God wants us to know. Now, that's not always the way people go at scriptural interpretation, but that's foundational. Number two, the extent... uh, we need to go to the Bible to the extent that is possible without bias. Now, I say to the extent that it's possible because none of us can go to the Bible without some bias, right? We all have a theological history or we have life experience or we have understanding and we take it to the text and we kind of read the Bible through our experience. Like, honestly, that's the way it is. But what we have to do is to the extent that we are able, we have to not do that. In other words, it's not about me and it's not about my mind and not about what I think. God, reveal to me what you have written in the book. I come to the extent that I'm able with a blank slate. I don't come to read into the text meaning or into the text what I want to hear. I come to the text so that you by your spirit can reveal your mind to me. And that will only happen if we go without, without bias to the extent that we're able to do so. Um, number three. And here we get into some of, the, some of the meaty stuff, some of the good stuff. We have to discover and know the historical contexts in order to know what the Bible's saying. Now stick with me as I go through this stuff. This is important. You know, you can't really know what any author was actually thinking and writing if you don't know the context in which he found himself, all those, all those authors of Scripture. And they were all men. 
we've got to come to a place where we get it, we understand what was actually going on. Now, think of the book of Revelation. It's a book that is often misunderstood and, or not, not understood properly. A lot of people think the book of Revelation is all about the end times. You know what? The last few chapters are, but the most of it isn't. Because it says, number one in the chapter, that's about a revelation of Jesus Christ. But the historical context is this. The historical context is the church about the year between 90 and 100 when the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, the same author of the Gospel of John. When he wrote his book, he was being persecuted. He had been exiled to a little island called Patmos where he wrote the book, but the whole church was being persecuted and people were being martyred for their faith. And it's in that context he writes this book in order to encourage them to remain faithful to God no matter what the world thinks, no matter what the world does. And it's in that context that you can then understand what's going on in John's mind and what he meant when he wrote it down. You've got to know the historical context. Not so much about what's going to happen when Jesus returns. A little bit at the end. I totally agree with that. But the rest, not so much. How about this one? And I'm going to be really general here, but in terms of understanding uh, particular uh, terms in Scripture. Now, I'm going to talk more about language in a minute, but there's a term in the Bible... Um, which used to be translated fornication, talking about sexual sin, not sex before marriage. And sometimes it would be translated homosexuality. <clears throat> it's not interpreted that way anymore. By the way, the more scholarship we have, the more we understand, and the better the translations in English become. But it's the word pornea. And, and, and what, was, what, what was going on in that context is, is that, as Paul wrote that, as, as he often or occasionally would, it's, it's literally sexual immorality. That's how it's in the New International Version now. And the idea that, that we have to in, grapple with is, what did Paul think that meant when he wrote it down? To do it badly, we would say, okay, there's the word sexual immorality. Okay, we can define what that looks like and what that means. No, 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 no. We can't do that. We've got to figure out what Paul meant. Now, Paul wrote that out of a very, very Jewish understanding of life. Paul, Paul was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, the Bible says. He was an incredibly committed believer in the Jewish faith until he met Jesus. When he wrote the word pornea, he was doing it out of that cultural context, which was formed by what? The Old Testament. That was their holy book. So it's actually kind of legitimate to write fornication or to write homosexual, homosexual practice because in the Hebrew mind of that day, it was clearly contrary to God's law. See, we don't get to determine the reality of what's written. We need to go back to the historical context and draw from that the meaning of any particular teaching. And I could go on with that. I'll do more of that in terms of language in just a little minute. But we have got to know the historical context. It's not written in a vacuum. And until you know the context, you don't really know what it's, what it's all about. Um, next one, we need to come to a place where we do know the original language. I'm going to shock you all a little bit. You're all going to think I'm heretic, a heretic in a minute, but hang in there with me. Isaiah chapter 8 says that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a child. And of course, along comes a story in Luke chapter 2 where Mary... Uh, it, it is written, it is taught that Mary conceived without any sexual relationship with a man, a virgin birth. Some folks come along and say, but, you know, in Hebrew, that word that is, 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 is translated virgin literally means young woman. 
So they say when we come to Mary, it's not that she was really, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, not that she really conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. It just means she was a young woman. What do you think about that? Well, I want to talk again. Language is really, really important. This connects pretty profoundly with the historical context. But when I, Isaiah wrote that and he used that word, which we translate virgin, you know what it meant to him? A person who was a virgin. No sexual experience. You see, we have, to, we have to dig into the language. We have to know the language. And the more we know the language, the more we're going to actually understand the scripture and not misinterpret what's being said. So language is incredibly important. By the way, knowing historical context, knowing language, knowing a bunch of these things gives me real job security, right? You, and I'm not saying this is me, but you need a good teacher of the word of God, someone who's trained in it, someone who has painfully studied Hebrew and Greek. <laughs> this is someone who, who, who knows because, A, I take time to do it, or I was trained in seminary to know the historical context. Out of these things comes the true meaning of the Bible. It's really, really important stuff. We go on from the idea of historical context and language. We come to the idea of, of, of knowing the, the, the culture of the day and distinguishing between culture and um, universal principle. And the great typical example, I, I can't think of a better one, so I'm going to use it, is that Paul wrote to women in 1 Corinthians, when you go to worship, you have to wear a head covering. Um, this is, again, historical context and so forth, but think of the cultural implication. Why did Paul write that? And by the way, why didn't our women not wear head coverings here? <clears throat> I used to go to church in Florida, a brethren church, <clears throat> excuse me, and all the women would wear these little doilies. It was okay. I mean, that's their belief. That's their practice. You respect it. You honor it. But here's the deal. When, when Paul wrote that in his culture, for a woman to not cover her hair was considered lewd, provocative, sexual. And he said, don't come to church like that. As a matter of fact, don't even dress like that. You know, all the guys are sitting there with their tongues hanging out because, you know, ooh, <laughs> that's not what I want for worship, Paul is saying. That's not what God wants for worship. But you see, in our culture, it doesn't mean that. That meaning is gone. It's not relevant to this culture. Now, there's a universal principle which we can take from it, and that is don't dress provocatively. Other part of Scripture, it says, women, you know, you're to dress modestly. There's a challenge in this day, isn't it? <laughs> Dress modestly without, you know, showing off your stuff. But that's the universal principle that we can take from the text so that when you come here, it's not about showing off, it's not about you, it's not about distracting other people, it's about glorifying and honoring God, being focused entirely on Him. So there are times there are cultural implications that are specific to the day back then, that don't apply anymore, and we recognize as such, but we look for the historical principle and what that passage means to us for today. Move on to literary style. Literary style. What is the genre of the, of the literature that is given? If it's poetry, read it as poetry. If it is history, read it as history. If it's an epistle or a letter, read it as if it's a letter. You're going to understand what's being said because you know the type of literature it is. If it's a gospel, read it as a gospel, a historical account of the person and life of Jesus, but written from a very distinct theological perspective. Both are written into a gospel. Yeah, let me put it this way to you. You don't read Harry Potter and the Globe and Mail in the same fashion, do you? 
Like when you read in the Globe and Mail or whatever paper you may choose, and you read about a reporter who's in Iraq describing events in Iraq, you assume there's a real Iraq, right? If you don't, we need to talk afterwards. <laughs> but how many people here really believe that Hogwarts is a place? Ah, <laughs> oh, the maniacs in the crowd, yeah. <laughs> you wish Hogwarts was a place, but it's not. It's a fictional creation of somebody's mind. And I can apply it in some... You don't read a biological textbook and Shakespeare in the same fashion. This is a very detailed description of biology, how our bodies function. Shakespeare is an artist. He's a dramatist. He is profound in, in the truth that he speaks, but he speaks it in a different way. You know, I could go on with some of this stuff, and I think it's kind of cool, so maybe I'll do a, a couple more. But, you know, you, you come to that place where you recognize what, this, what the genre is, and you interpret the text based on what the genre is. It's absolutely critical, and sometimes that's done really poorly. Um, again, think of the gospel. Question for you, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is he really Lord of all creation, living today, having gone through the experience of his passion, suffering and dying on a cross, raised to new life, or is that just a bit of a myth which is intended to create truth for us? So we don't really believe he rose from the dead. Some do say, even Christian ministers and, and professors. It's just, it's just kind of trying to communicate truth through a story. And I go back again to what is a gospel? Is a gospel a myth-telling book? Is it, a act of, is it a work of fiction? Or it is a historic document with a strong theological bent? Sometimes the gospels are a little different in terms of how they tell the story. That's because there's a theology being taught, and the incredibly brilliant authors of those books are using the historical story to communicate a theological perspective. So don't worry if the things, uh, things are somewhat different. There's purpose behind it. So my friends, when we believe that a gospel and all of them talk about the literal resurrection of Jesus are historical descriptions of the reality, we look at them and we say, yeah, Jesus literally rose from the dead. This is no myth-telling fictional work. This is not something that is intended to create as an understanding of truth by telling a story that didn't actually happen. Not a gospel. Not a gospel. That's very profound. How about this in similar light? Is the text figurative or is it literal? You've got to ask that question, too. You know, Jesus was uh, walking around one day, and he was gathering a crowd of people, not only his disciples, but others were following him, and he, and he turned to them at one point. I think he was pretty frustrated, and he said to them, if you are not willing to eat my body and drink my blood, you're not worthy of me. And a lot of persons heard that and said, like, are you out of your mind? And they left him. They said, I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. Now, did Jesus literally want them to sit down and start chewing? Or to somehow make him bleed and start... No, he was speaking figuratively. We un understand it as communion. Jesus said at one point, you know, this temple, speaking of the temple in Jerusalem, it will be torn down and rebuilt in three days. The Pharisees went, and the teachers of the law and so forth, they went ballistic. You can't tear this building down and rebuild it in th three days. It took decades to build this thing. He's not speaking literally. He's saying, you know, no, no. I will, be, I will die, and in three days I will rise from the dead. And by the way, I am now that temple. I am, the, I, I am the presence of the living God in your midst. See how profound that truth is that he communicates by speaking figuratively? Of course, there are times that, that, um, that we, we just have to really dig into that. Go back to Revelation, highly symbolic book. 
as is the Gospel of John, same author. When it speaks of the dragon, well, what's the dragon? Well, the dragon, if you know and interpret it well, is the devil. Remember in one of those chapters, I think seven or eight, it says the, dra the dragon sits before the woman who's about to give birth so he might devour the child. It's the Christmas story. <laughs> Herod wanting to kill the baby. and It's just a, a figurative way of communicating the reality. You know, the, the, the lampstands. What does the lampstand? It means it's talking about the church. And on and on it goes. We need to know what symbolism is and what, what reality is otherwise. All right. Oh, I forgot one. I'm going to go back to the original language because I like this one. Are you with me still? Hanging in there? Think this is good? Yeah, oh, good, good, good. I hope you're being honest with me. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5 says, Husbands are to be the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. I've taught this, but not for a long time, so I'll do it again. And a lot of people will read that word, the husband is to be the head of the wife, and they think, they read, interpret, they read meaning into the word. And they think, well, the husband is to be the leader and the authority, the boss, if you would, of the wife. And then she's to submit to his leadership, his authority, his bossiness. Well, there were two words when Paul was writing, two words in Greek that Paul could have chosen when he was writing that the husband is to be the head of the wife, the word head, as Christ is the head of the church. Two words in Greek. One of them refers to a hierarchical ordering. Somebody at the top who's the boss, and then the wife being below. And then there's another word which is used, uh, kephala, actually, and, and the idea is not the, 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 the authority of, but like, like the head of a river, the source of. Now, Paul could have chosen either one of those words to communicate his meaning. He chose kephala, not the other word which refers to the boss. So that the husband, I think it's pretty clear myself, is to be the source of life for the wife, the source of joy, the source of encouragement, the source of love pouring into her as a husband who deeply loves and seeks to bless his wife. Oh, I have goosebumps. And you see, that fits because a verse prior, it says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And who does that apply to? It applies to everybody, husband and wife alike. And then Paul goes on and he says, okay, wives, you submit to your husbands, and then husbands, let me put it this way, submit to your wives by being willing to submit your life for her sake. Be ready to die for her. Like, if that's not submission, I don't know what is. So you see the, the historical context, the meanings of the words, the original language, you know, the literary style, whether it's figurative or not, all of these things come into play, and by them we come to a place where we can know what the book is trying to communicate. Now, you've got to do the work, and you've got to do it well. And sometimes there are debates about these things. I don't deny that. Scholars go head-to-head -head in these things. Sometimes it takes decades to figure out what these things actually mean. But if you, if you believe the Scripture is the Word of God, scholars get to the point of defining it. Now, some don't think it's the Word of God. Some don't. You have to interpret Scripture by Scripture, which is another principle. Anyway, we need to move on just to finish up before, you know, 3 o'clock this afternoon. Um... Here's my point to you today, and it has been implied for these three sermons now. God wants you to know his mind. He really does. He wants you to think his thoughts after him. And I want to tell you this. God's mind is not divided on any one issue. 
oh, you interpret it that way and I'll interpret it this way. You say sex before marriage is a problem, I'll say it isn't. Ah! God's mind is God's mind and it is not divided. And it's critical that we figure out what is true. Because as we figure out what is true, I want to tell you, my friends, we come to that place of knowing God and believing the things that he calls us to do and to living in such a fashion that we find life as we live in the reality of life eternal. And here's my challenge to you. This book, holy, divinely inspired, the voice of God in our lives, it must be central to your life. That's what this series is about. And I'm here to ask you today, is it central to your life? Is it something that you go to? Is it something that, that you seek God in and pursue an understanding of his mind so that you might worship him with your life? Whether it be moral practice or whether it be believing the right things, whatever it might be. I'm telling you, there are a lot of people who don't bother much with Scripture because they have better things to do. And my friends, this has to change. Paul wrote that it is the truth that sets us free. Not your truth, not my truth. It's God's truth that sets us free, free from sin and from evil and from death. Do you want to be set free? Do you want to know the mind of God? It ultimately is the means whereby we experience eternal life. Listen, Jesus says in response to the devil in Matthew chapter 4, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You don't eat, you will grow weak. You will be impoverished as a human being. You will be incapable to function. And I want to tell you, if we don't eat, if, if you would, the word of God, it says in, in Jeremiah, I believe, seven, 15 actually, that the word of God came to Jeremiah and he ate it. He consumed it. And I, I'm telling you, if you don't consume the word of God on a daily and regular basis, you will grow weak and you will be impoverished in your Christian life and you will not be able to have the strength and the vitality of a Christian that you, that, that you can know. It is critical that we live in the book. You know, I, I, I've, uh, in recent months, I suppose, read Psalm 119. The whole psalm, it's huge, it's lengthy, it's like 160 verses or something. The entire book, uh, a chapter, is about the Word of God. There's a good chapter to study if you want to know more. And it's divided into sections. And the first word of each section is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it goes through every single one of them. Talk about being connected to the Word, right? Here's what, I'm not going to read the, all these verses to you just because of time, but here's what it says, verse 47. We can discover the word of God so that it becomes a delight and so that we love it. Do you love the word of God and do you find delight in it? Cool little story that I'm probably going to use as, as an illustration more at another time, but I went on Thursday for an angiogram. Anybody know, you know what an angiogram is? It's what those band is for. They stick a catheter in there and it runs up your arm and it goes into your heart and they pump dye into your, vein, uh, your arteries and then they watch it on a big screen. It's really cool. I'm lying there looking at my heart. And I'm glad it's moving. <laughs> and the dye goes through and they figure out if your arteries are blocked or not. I'm 59 tomorrow and there's nothing in my arteries. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> but the cardiologist wanted to know what's going on in my heart. 
I think God wants to know what's going on in your heart. And maybe more importantly, you need to know what's going on in your heart. If you love God and if you're passionate for the Lord and, and if you've given your life to him and you want to know him, you can, come, you can come to this book and you can learn how to uh, interpret it and apply it. You can get to know God and his thinking and you get to know how to live for him. You can come to delight in the book and you can come to love it. Do you love it? Verse 77 um, talks about how the, the word of God is more precious than a thousand pieces of silver or a thousand pieces of gold. Oh, is it precious to you? Highly valuable? That's what the text says can happen when we come to know God in the text and experience him there. And the results, verse, verse 97. Oh, verse 111, it brings you joy. Bring you joy. Has the word of God ever brought you joy? It can. It's intended to. Verse 97 says that uh, we are to, to read the word of God day and night. <laughs> you know, God, let God speak to you. Verse 57, we are to obey God by obeying the words that he has commanded. And then I do want to read verses 14 and 16 as a conclusion to our series today. And they say this, I rejoice in following your statutes. Is this you? Joy in doing what God says? As one rejoices in great riches, it's like, oh, I won the lottery, yahoo! <laughs> now, you don't need to win the lottery to know joy. You, you can rejoice in scripture in the same way as if you were made rich in a moment. I meditate on your precepts and, I, and consider your ways. I delight into your, in, in your decrees. And then it says this, I will not neglect your word. My friends, if there's one thing is your loving pastor <laughs> who has a passion for your spiritual lives, I can tell you to do, it's to not neglect the word of God. All kinds of research has been done which only proves what Scripture tells us to do. Christians who eat the Word of God, who read it a lot, who learn how to interpret, who study it and go deep in it, it is they who go deeper in their faith. It is they who encounter the reality of God in powerful and life-transforming ways. Others stay kind of on the surface of Christianity, the superficial understanding of it without transformation. I say to you, do not neglect the word of God. I'm speaking it for you, right? Am I doing a good job? God has spoken. I'm just telling you what God said. Don't neglect the word of God. Build it into your life and seek him. Now, we here at IPC are bending over backwards to, to give you this. We preach biblically. We have the year of the Bible. We're doing the story beginning in September, 31 weeks of the biblical overview, providing the story and how you can live in it. We have Bible school uh, established for the fall. Two profs from surrounding uh, seminaries are coming to preach for us. We have Right Now Media that you can sign up for, which is a fantastic online resource that will teach you the Bible if you want to know it. What else is there? Oh, a library, commentaries, scholars, brilliant people who have written books, who, which, which will help you understand historical context and the meaning of words, and on and on it goes. My friends, can I just implore you to be people who dig into Scripture and who live your life seeking to know God by seeking to know what he has spoken in his word. This book can become a treasure in our lives. I hope it has for you. If it hasn't, seek after it.
encounter God, know the mind of God, and live in obedience to him as you live under the authority of scripture. Let's pray. God, I pray for these people gathered here today, and I just ask with all of my heart that they will be people who um, make the Bible a priority in their lives. God, I pray that they'll become really knowledgeable biblically. They'll become experts in your word. And I pray, Father, that uh, as they seek after you, that you will literally reveal your mind and your heart to them through Scripture, that they might become everything that you call them to be. That, Lord, yes, they might know eternal life, but they also might know the abundant life, which comes when we just simply accept what you have said and live according to it. God bless us as a church. Help us to remain faithful to what you have spoken. Lord, keep the world from invading and impacting us. Let us invade the world and impact it. Let us be the prophetic voice of God, calling the world to live differently according to your word. Thank you, Lord, for this incredible book. Let us treasure it. Let us love it. Let us find joy and delight in it as we follow the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray.